All right, you can have a seat. Unless you're a Sprouts or a Seedlings kiddo, now is your time. You can head on downstairs, have fun in your classes today. Also, just want to give thanks to our worship team. Can we give it up to them for all that they do leading us? Yeah. Thank you, guys. Awesome. Also, our tech crew, we don't shout you guys out nearly enough, but Noah, Dan, Aaron, yes, that's, yeah, getting here early, just appreciate your guys' hearts of service and in and, and that way, so we can worship. Um, all right, so growing up, um, one of my, some of my fondest memories are family trips, right, family vacations. Um, we didn't get to travel a lot, but probably about once a year, we would take a, a trip of some sort as a family of five, and as a kid, like some of you might resonate with this, like I loved hotels. You guys love hotels as a kid, like the pool, the free breakfast, breakfast, it was awesome. Um, and so that was always the highlight for me. And so I remember um, a trip we took, I don't even remember where it was, but I remember this vividly because we still talk about it to this day. But we show up at a hotel um, and my dad gets out, he goes up to the front desk to, uh, to check in, right, or, or to, I don't know if he was checking in or if he was getting a room for us or whatnot. Um, but I loved hotels so much, I'm like, dad, can I come? can I come with you to check in? I want to see the lobby, you know, start scoping it out. And so he's like, yeah, you can come on in with me. So I walk in with dad. He's talking with, uh, with the clerk up front or whatnot. And, uh, and she asks him, so how many are in your family? And my dad says, four. And I'm like, my wheels start spinning, four? What is, what is going on? Like, what is my dad doing? And so, and then I, I look up and I, say, I start tugging at him and he looks down and he's like, what? I'm like, dad, there's five people in our family. And he's like down there like pushing me down, like, shut up, shut up, stop talking, stop talking. And the, the cashier is kind of looking at us like, oh, uh, what am I supposed to believe here? The five-year-old or, or dad, right? How many are truly in your family? And then he's like, okay, there's five of us in our family. And, and so he admitted his guilt, but you know... Like, my family, frugal as can be, right? He was trying to save, save some money, not having to pay the extra fee for that fifth person. You got to get, like, the cot or whatever. Um, but I called him on his lie, and I was not going to let that slide. I think more than anything, I was just so confused. I'm like, Dad, like, Laura's already, like, two years old. Do you not remember you having this third kid? Uh, like, what is going on? I was just so confused. Um, and I think my, my underlying, but anyways, he like dragged me out and he, he gave me a talking to back at the, back at the car. I'm like, what? I was just telling the truth. Like, what is going on? Uh, but I think what was going on for me in that moment was like, I had this underlying confusion um, that my dad had taught me one thing, like honesty is a big deal in our family. Like we are going to be truth tellers. We're going to be honest. We're not going to lie. We're not going to skirt around the truth. But then he was practicing another in that moment, right? He told a lie. And I, and I called him on it, right? It's not that I was this perfectly honest kid all the time, far from it. But what really got me was the fact that his words and his belief wasn't matched by his actions, right? And, and so this word hypocrisy, right, is what we're talking about this morning. And, and I think hypocrisy is probably universally frowned upon. Would we agree? Like, whether it's Believers, non-believers, church, culture, like universally, I think hypocrisy is, is no good, right? I mean, think about it. How many of you want to go see a doctor who's always getting sick, 
or is coughing in your face, right? How many of you want a personal trainer who looks like they haven't worked out in a decade and just sits there and is like, ah, do that, do that? And what about like your mechanic who actually has to walk to work every day because his car is sitting at home broken down, right? Like things like that. We're like, no, I'm not taking my car there. Right? He can't figure out his own car, right? And so there's, there's these dynamics going on with hypocrisy. And what is it exactly about hypocrisy that irks us? I think it's going back to, to my dad. And God bless him. Dad, if you're listening, I love you. You are the most, one of the most honest men um, on the planet. So um, let's, just, let's just get that out of the way. Um, one moment of weakness. He is human. Um, and he actually told that story at, at our wedding when he gave a speech. And so he, he owns it. He owns it. He laughs about it now. But it's the fact that when a person says they believe something or they tell people to do something, right, but then they practice another and, and that, that personal behavior doesn't match their belief. I think deep down that all kind of irks us as humans. And we notice that um, in our world. And so today we're diving into the hypocrisy chapter of Matthew, chapter 23. So if you want to turn your Bibles to Matthew 23, we're going to spend, spend the morning there. Um, if you've been here for most of Matthew, you know that Jesus and the religious leaders had been butting heads quite often. Like, they keep coming up. Matthew and Luke, both of those Gospels are very heavily centered on Jesus' dialogue with the Pharisees, the religious leaders. And, and this chapter in Matthew 23 is like the pinnacle of Jesus' rebuke against the Pharisees. It's kind of all been building up to this point. And then it's almost like Jesus says, all right, I've heard enough. I'm going to lay the hammer down right here. He's, he's, going, he's going all in, and he lays it all out there for them. And so... I'll be honest, when I heard I was doing Matthew 23, I was like, are you kidding me? Why, why me? Um, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, I'll be honest, it's a difficult text. It's a difficult text. I'm just going to say that out, out front at the beginning. Um, as I was studying it this week, it was almost like Jesus was ripping my own heart open and doing like open heart surgery, and it hurt. It was convicting. And so um, be prepared. You're probably going to feel a little bit of conviction, maybe a lot of bit of conviction today. Um, but what is that? Let's be wrestling with what is that conviction? Where is that coming from? Um, I'm reminded that every single word that Jesus said was on purpose, right? He didn't just, you know, blow smoke to blow smoke. He, he, he wasn't interested in just wasting breath and wasting words. Everything he said had purpose. And so he gives us these warnings and rebukes to all believers, to the church today, simply, not simply because he wants to offend us, but because he loves us, and he has something for us in here that he wants us to, to wrestle with, to, even if it hurts, to wrestle with, and to be changed by it, to be transformed by it, because he loves us, okay? So Matthew 23, we're going we're gonna to kind of take it in chunks today. Uh, we're going to start out with the first four verses. They should be up on the screen, and, uh, and I'll read it out loud, starting in verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and his disciples, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees are the official interpreters of the law of Moses. So practice and obey whatever they tell you, but don't follow their example, for they don't practice what they preach. They crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. So here, at the beginning, Jesus is talking to the, the crowds and his disciples about the Pharisees. Okay, so the first 12 verses are about the Pharisees, um, and then we'll notice in verse 13 there's a, there's a switch, there's a transition there. 
But in Jewish religion, the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law have the authority of Moses. So they are the official interpreter, interpreters um, and the official spokesman, the legal expert of God's word, of his law. Um, they're, they're considered the experts. And so they have this authority um, that has been given to them, passed down, you know, um, from Moses when, when the law was given to Moses, right? Um, and so Jesus is basically saying, hey, if they're teaching God's word rightly, listen to it, obey it, do what they tell you to do, right? But be careful not to follow their actions because they don't practice what they preach, hypocrisy, right? What was happening was that they were trying so hard to protect the law that they were actually adding all these laws around the law in hopes that it would actually um, protect the law and get people to follow it more faithfully. But these rules kept getting stacked higher and higher and higher and higher. They were creating their own law, right, around the true law, the law that was good for them. Um, and so what was happening is that these laws were so heavily that, heavy that the people were getting crushed underneath the law. The weight was unbearable. To make matters worse, the Pharisees didn't lift a finger to help. They're like, you do that. We're going to do this, but you do that. And they would just kind of sit back and see them suffer, right? It's kind of like, I don't know if, if you guys are, any of you work out or go to the gym, but um, I did like two decades ago a little bit. Um, so it came to my mind as I was thinking about this. It's kind of like the really bad spotter at the gym, right? You're with your buddy and the spotter's like, hey, man, let me, let me help you lift all these plates up there for the, for the squat rack. And so you're like, oh, we're going to max out. Let's put all these plates up there. And a good spotter stands behind, right, and is ready if, if the, the person lifting is struggling with that weight, they're there then to grab the bar and help lift it back up so they don't get, you know, squished underneath the 300 pounds or whatever it is, right? But a terrible spotter just kind of sits back and is like, ah, it's fun to watch you suffer. I hope, I hope you get squashed like a bug under that weight, right? It's like, what? Come on, man. Get in there and, and be a good friend and carry some of that weight, right? Be a good spotter. Um, but the Pharisees, like, you guys, you guys are on your own, right? Good luck with all these laws that we've given you that, that we ourselves aren't even practicing. All right, so then moving on to verse 5. Everything they do is for show. On their arms, they wear extra-wide prayer boxes with scripture verses inside, and they wear robes with extra-long tassels. And they love to sit at the head table at banquets and in the seats of honor in the synagogues. They love to receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi. All right, so basically what's going on here, um, the religious leaders were very into themselves. They were very self-focused. And so we have a picture up there. They had these phylact phylacteries. Um, these are um, little prayer boxes on the top there. Little prayer boxes, you would wear one around your forehead and then one on your, your left forearm, right? And so they would wear these specifically when they were doing their, their weekly morning prayer meetings. Um, and, and they would wear these tassels on their robes. And it was customary for, for Jewish rabbis um, and religious leaders to, to wear these, right? It's actually commanded by God in the Old Testament. However, notice what's going on there. They because these were supposed to be reminders of God and his word. They had a purpose. But notice that they enlarged and lengthened them so that all the people would notice. They're kind of like, hey, just so you civilians know, I'm a pretty big deal. Look at me. Look how large my 
phylacteries are, right? My tassels. Um, so whether they were at banquets, in the marketplace, the synagogue, places of public worship, they wanted to be the show in town. Like, look at me. I'm different than you. I've got these phylacteries and these tassels that are bigger than anybody else's. All right, so moving on to verse 8. They say this. Jesus says, Don't let anyone call you rabbi, for you have only one teacher, and all of you are equal as brothers and sisters. And don't address anyone here on earth as father, for only God in heaven is your father. And don't let anyone call you teacher, for you only have one teacher, the Messiah. The greatest among you must be a servant, but those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So the Pharisees were also very concerned about their identity. What did people think about them? They wanted the approval of men and were delighted when people would call them rabbi, father, teacher. Like these titles were a big deal to them, right? And, uh, and as, we, as we study this, I, I want to kind of clarify that this isn't Jesus knocking the need for spiritual leadership. Um, he's actually, Jesus instituted that. It's important, right? But he's saying the Pharisees need to be rebuked for how they're using their leadership position to assert their superiority and their authority over people. They were, they were basically saying, you're down here and we're here, listen to us. And they were even a little bit abusive in that um, with their authority. And they were also, worse yet, trying to assert their authority over Christ. They were driven by pride. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, has a, has a great quote on pride. He said, pride is competitive by its very nature. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only having more of it than the next man. Right? So if, if, you've, if you've wrestled with that before, it's like with pride, you can have everything. But if someone has a little bit more than you, it irks you. You're like, oh, I need more. I need more. It's a competitive thing, right? So where do we see this in our lives? Um, sadly, I hate to say this, but how easily is it to compare and compete even as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ in our spiritual lives? Right? Um, how often it's kind of tempting to try to, to get a leg up on someone else by, by saying, by kind of cutting them down so that we build ourselves up, right? Um, and we can do that in very subtle ways, very passive-aggressive ways. Um, but I think this dynamic is very dangerous because it's bred by insecurity, right? We're not secure, we're not content in the approval of God, the audience of one, that we need men to give us our approval, we want to be seen, we want to be noticed, we want to be better and seen as higher regarded than others, right? But this is what Jesus is getting at. We are all equal before God through Christ. He's basically saying, guys, I'm Jesus. You are all students, right? You are all students. I am the teacher. You are all children together. I am, or my father is your father. You are children, Okay, you are all sinners. I am the Savior. Okay? That's not me talking about myself. That's Jesus saying that, right? Um, so he's saying, you are all equal under Christ. Stop trying to assert yourselves and create this hierarchy. It's basically God and humanity, right? That's the hierarchy in the kingdom of God. But the Pharisees were, were really trying to create that, um, create that advantage. And so it's interesting, though, because um, Jesus is saying, don't try to take advantage of people for your own well-being. 
But then he's kind of saying at the end there, you notice, it's like, but if you want an eternal advantage, something in the next life, in heaven, what should you do? Become a servant. Become a servant. Said, those that exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. All right? So he's saying, if you want to be great, serve. Stop trying to domineer over people and use your authority to push others down. Serve them, right? That's that, that upside-down kingdom and that, that kingdom economy that we've been talking about here in Matthew. All right, so that gets us through verse 12. How are we doing so far? Any, uh, any conviction yet? <laughs> um, I, I know I am um, through this, um, but what's crazy is that Jesus is just getting warmed up. Like, that was him talking to the disciples and the crowds about the Pharisees, and now he turns his focus and looks directly at the Pharisees and is like, now I'm coming right at you guys. This is directly to you, okay? And so uh, this is often described as um, the seven woes to the Pharisees. And so Jesus um, lists seven things that the Pharisees are doing and, and the woes behind that. And so um, let's go ahead and start in verse 13 as he's talking to the Pharisees. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and you Pharisees? Hypocrites, for you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You won't go in yourselves, and you don't let others enter either. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and you Pharisees? Hypocrites, for you cross land and sea to make one convert, and then you turn that person into twice the child of hell you yourselves are. Ouch. But he's talking to the Pharisees, so we're good, right? We're good. But the job of the Pharisees was to teach the law in a way that opened the door for the people to come into the kingdom of God. Like the law was given by God as a good gift. It's like, here's boundaries that you need for living, for loving me and for loving people well. Instead, and it also was called to, to reveal our own sin so that we knew our need for Jesus, right? But instead, through their false teaching, they closed the door on people who wanted to come to God. They created laws that were roadblocks to the kingdom of God. Let's not miss this part, though. The Pharisees were sincere in everything that they were doing. They were zealous in what they thought was right. They were doing the best they thought they could with what they had. Um, they zealously traveled over land and sea to convert people to God's law. Little did they realize they were causing their converts to fall further away from God. Right? What was really happening was that they were making converts to themselves. They were making converts to religion. They were making converts to the law. They were making um, disciples of legalism rather than to Jesus. That's why Jesus' rebuke was so strong. He says, by leading people to religion, to legalism, to the law, you are leading them away from Jesus to hell, right? Very strong words from Jesus there. Words of condemnation, not just for them, but for the people that they were speaking to and trying to convert to, to their ideas. So this is startling, right? Like, what does that mean for us? Um, you know, at Greenhouse, like, our desire, our mission is to grow disciples. And I hope and pray that it's not disciples of Drew, 
I hope and pray that it's not disciples of Jason or Rich or, or anyone else. I hope it's not disciples of Greenhouse, religion, duty, legalism, church attendance, programs, even service. Please call us on that if you ever see that. If you ever see us heading down kind of like a, a self-focused path of you need to do this so that we can grow or that we can look better or so that Greenhouse can, you know, be this or that, right? Please call us on that. This is about making disciples of Jesus, okay? We should always be pointing people to Jesus, not ourselves, our church, our programs, etc. Okay, so um, verse 16 through 24. Um, that's a bigger chunk there, so due to time, we're not actually going to read that. It will be up on the screen. Um, but quick explanation and summary of where Jesus goes next, the next woes. Um, he starts calling them blind guides. And so what's going on here is that the main point um, that Jesus is saying is that the Pharisees were focusing on lighter things rather than the weightier things. So they were basically, we like to say they were, they were majoring in the minor and minoring in the major, right? They were missing the point. So Jesus is saying, why do you elevate the temple gold above the temple itself when it's the temple that makes the gold in the temple sacred, okay? Why do you elevate a mere gift above the altar when it's the altar that makes the gift meaningful, and then it goes and talks about tithing. Um, why do you fret the tiniest bit of money, but don't seem to care that you turn your back on justice, mercy, and faith? Remember in, in Micah, when it says, what are, um, true religion is this, is, is to walk humbly, uh, mercifully, and justly with our God, right? I think I got those three right. Um, but that's what the law is all about, Right? Justice, mercy, faith, loving people, and loving God. But in their quest to mine through the smallest details of the law, they miss the purpose of all the laws, right? Jesus said, or Jason said last week, Jesus said it in Matthew 22, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love people. That is the purpose of the whole law. The irony in this is that these are the simplest of all the laws, right? Love God, love people. Jesus boils it down in a very simple way. But the irony is that the, the Pharisees um, wanted those laws to be convenient for them. Those laws, love God and love people, are actually the most costly of all the law. Like those are what really require you to get your hands dirty and sacrifice yourself for God and for others. But they wanted their laws to be convenient. They didn't want to get their hands dirty with true, practical ministry and serving people and administering justice to the, to the oppressed and, and giving money to the poor. They wanted to be important, but they didn't want to do the important work, if that makes sense. So they were, they were exchanging the important for the minor, for the not as important. So verse 25. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are filthy, full of greed and self-indulgence. 
You blind Pharisee, first wash the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will be clean too. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and you Pharisees? Hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. Outwardly, you look like righteous people, but inwardly, your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. Don't you love how vivid Jesus' metaphors are? Right? Dirty dishes and a rotten tomb. There you go. You can explain kingdom truths through dirty dishes and a rotten tomb. But on the outside, both looked clean and beautiful, right? Um, but inside, where it really matters, there was filth, impurity, and death. Okay? They were full of greed and self-indulgence on the inside where it really counted. Jesus is saying that purity always begins in the heart on the inside and then flows outward. But they were switching those. Like Maybe if I make myself look really good on the outside, the inside will kind of just take care of itself. That's not how it works. That's not how it works. Jesus wants to get into the deepest parts of our heart and do the hard work of transformation through his spirit. And from there, our external behavior, our actions, our words, our desires, um, we'll start to change and follow what he's doing in our heart on the inside, right? Yet the religious leaders masked the ugliness in their hearts with religion. Jesus is exposing a huge thing here. Religion is a subtle but dangerous cover-up for spiritual deadness. Right? Think about it. Like Religion looks really good on the outside, so it makes sense that people would want to use religion to cover up what they really know is going on in their heart. They know they're, they're messed up. We all kind of know we're messed up deep down, but we mask that in a lot of ways. That's what the Pharisees are doing. They think their good works and their reputation can be this beautiful tomb that hides their sin, but the ironic part is that Jesus tears open the tomb and exposes that they are spiritually dead. It's like putting makeup on a corpse, right? It's like, what are we doing here? Why? Right? And so this is, this is hard. It, it reminds me of what Rich was talking about a few weeks ago. I keep thinking about this. It was so powerful. He was talking about when Jesus saw the fig tree and the leaves were beautiful. They were green. They were, you know, they looked healthy, looked like a healthy tree, but Jesus gets closer and realizes there's no figs on the fig tree and he curses it. And Rich tied it in beautifully. He said, that's basically talking to the religious leader saying, external things can make you look really, really good, but there's really no fruit there. You have no prayer life. You have no relationship with God. Your heart doesn't delight in the Lord. It is filled with duty. It is filled with outward appearances. And it's actually dead on the inside. Um, David Platt, in his commentary, Christ-Centered Exposition, says it this way. And this is another one that hurts. He says this, No matter how sincere we are, no matter how hard we try, no matter what we do, we have hearts that warrant the wrath and condemnation of God. Sin leaves each of us dead, right? Ephesians 2 talks about that. We're dead in our trespasses. We're dead in our sin. So how do we respond to that truth? How do we respond to the fact that our souls are spiritually dead? 
Well, first, let's see how the Pharisees responded. Then we'll get to ourselves, okay? We don't have time to read um, 29 through 36, but this is the seventh woe. And it's important to, um, it's really important. So let's recap really quick. Basically, what's going on here is that the Pharisees were, again, taking pride in the fact that they weren't as bad as their Jewish ancestors, okay? All the, so much, if you read the Old Testament, God would send prophets, he would send godly people to the people to call them to repentance, to turn from their sin, and they were murdered. You didn't want to be a prophet in the Old Testament because most of them lost their lives. The Jewish people didn't like being told of their heir, so they would just kill the prophets, right? And, but the Pharisees are like, that was our ancestors, that wasn't us, we're guilty, or we're innocent. Like, stop, you know, don't accuse us of that, right? They said, our ancestors killed many of God's prophets and other godly people. We would never do such a thing. But Jesus says, you're exactly like your ancestors. And you are going to finish what they started by killing God's people. You will be held responsible for all the godly people that you and your ancestors murdered. You probably know what's next, right? Who are, the, who are the Pharisees about to, to murder? Jesus. The one in their midst. God's son. They were also um, about, to, about to murder Jesus' disciples. They were also about to murder and persecute first century Christians, the early church. Jesus knows their hearts. He knows that their hearts are bent on legalism, and they don't want nothing to do with this Jesus guy because he's offending them, right? They are not happy. They want to take his life. And so that leads Jesus to these concluding statements, the last three verses, 37 through 39. Jesus is, is kind of stepping back and, and grieving over Jerusalem. He says this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones God's messengers, How often I have wanted to gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings, but you wouldn't let me. And now look, your house is abandoned and desolate, for I tell you this, you will never see me again until you say, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. All right, there's a lot going in there. On there, the, the two things that kind of mark Jesus' grief over Jerusalem, right? God's city, right? God's holy city. It's marked by two things. The first one is, again, he's speaking to condemnation, right? He's saying, Jerusalem's condemnation is just. Look at all they've done. They've murdered the prophets. They stoned God's messengers. They're, they're walking away from God's law. They're leading people away repeatedly turning away from God and his word. And now they're refusing God's son who had came to be their savior. Their condemnation is just. But the second thing going on there, thank Jesus that he doesn't stop there, right? He keeps going and he says this. He talks about how he wants to gather his children together as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings. Compassion. That's the second thing, compassion. Jesus had longed for Jerusalem's salvation. Remember, these are the chosen people of God. Like Jesus um, had 
came through the Jewish line of Abraham and of David. He is one of them. These are his people. These are his people, right? Luke 19.41 says that Jesus wept over Jerusalem. Jesus wasn't robotic or calloused or hardened. He was, his heart was broken. He was completely overwhelmed with grief for his people not receiving him, their Savior. And he describes himself like this mother hen who protects her chicks beneath her wings. But then the chicks run away. They run away. So, okay, that gets us through the, the seven woes on the Pharisees. That gets us through Matthew 23. So I want us to step back for just a minute because as much as this is written towards the religious leaders of this day, it's also written for believers now. It's written for us. And so here's the frightening reality of Matthew 23. Jesus is not pronouncing condemnation just on these religious leaders. He's pronouncing condemnation on all sinners. Without Christ, we all have rotten hearts, right? We're rotting. We're dead corpses. In our thoughts, our desires, our actions, we've all denied Christ. And so we have to admit how our own sin placed Jesus on the cross. The Pharisees would not admit it. They were defensive. They were prideful. They're like, that was our ancestors. We're, not, we're doing good work for the Lord. We're, we're giving them your, your law and your word. But they missed it, right? They didn't admit how much they actually needed Jesus. John Stott um, has a quote. He says, before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. That's hard to take in, right? Our sin is what crucified Jesus. Yes, the Roman, the Roman soldiers put the nails in his wrists, right? But it was our sin and their sin that held him there, right? That put him there, that, that made the need for him to die. And so three application questions as we go from, from knowing um, to doing in our lives, and, and this is one that requires a bunch of introspection um, because we don't just want to start with the external stuff, like just go do that, change that, change your behavior. Remember, this has got to start in, inward, right? And so these questions that we're going to talk about are, are inward, introspection, reflective, self-examination questions. Like let's dig deep in our hearts with these. And they might hurt. They hurt me. Um, the, the idea is that we're all prone to spiritual deception, Right? That's part of the big idea this week is that we're all prone to deception. And so the first question is, what areas of your life and faith are you missing it? Or what areas of life have you missed it? The Pharisees seemed good. It seemed like they were on target, but the target was actually over here. It was loving God and loving people, and they were doing something completely different. They missed it. They miss Jesus. And so let's examine, are there areas of our, of our life where we're struggling with hypocrisy? Like we, we say we believe something, but then we do something else. I see a lot of that in my life. And so I was, I was just wrestling with that this week. Second question, is there dirt in your dish that needs to be cleaned out? 
It's always easier to look at our behavior, and behavior can be a sign. It can point us to what's really going on inside, um, but it's easier to start with external than it is to, to start in our hearts. And so um, let's be looking. Let's check our dishes. Let's check, check our cups um, to see, is there gunk? Is there dirt? Is there, you know, we have a lot of dishes sitting in our, in our kitchen sink right now. We didn't get to them, and there's oatmeal stuck to them and mac and cheese and all this stuff. Is there gunk that needs to be cleaned out on the inside of our dish, in our heart. And then number three, what type of disciples are we making? Are we pointing people to Jesus, or are we pointing people to ourselves, and religion, or legalism, or something else, or our interests, or our hobbies? Not that all those things are bad, but we are called to be followers of Jesus and point people to him. Because I don't want there to be more Drews than, than one. There's enough Drews, Drew Pankratzes, and all of my mess in this world. We need people to know Jesus, not ourselves. Okay, so let's examine that part of it as well. So ask God to expose blind spots, right? Um, reveal our true hearts, God. Bring conviction. And then let's just focus on confessing these things to God and if, and if we need to. That's why we're the body of Christ. We can confess those to each other. An amazing part about the body of Christ is that we can see things in others that we oftentimes don't see ourselves. Um, I don't like that at the time, but I've so often needed just a, a gentle rebuke saying, you knucklehead, what are you doing? Why are you so unfocused? Why are you hypocritical? Why are you, why are you doing this or thinking about that, right? So let's, let's be a church family who's who's open and receptive to encouraging each other with that, to pointing out some of those blind spots, um, because this is not the end of the story, right? Um, if, this, if examination of our sin and condemnation was the end of the story, this is really, really, really scary stuff. We don't want to see what we're going to find in our hearts if that's the end of the story. But we don't have to fear what we'll, what we'll find in our hearts because Jesus, remember, is also full of compassion, his greatest desire is that we are saved from condemnation. His mission was to seek and save the lost. So there's this, I stumbled across it this week. I've never, never heard of it until this point. Maybe some of you had, but there's this little um, gospel story. It's called The Little Hen. I think it's called The Little Hen. I think we have a picture of The Little Red Hen. There you go. Has anyone ever heard about this story? Yeah? Some of you? Yeah, so I was reading, I was reading about this, and I was blown away because it ties into Jesus in verse 38 when he talks about the mother hen and her chicks. And so the story was, was written um, kind of along, along that, that metaphor. And so let's go ahead and read it, um, kind of a summary of it, and then uh, we're going to wrap up with some communion this morning. So it says this, The forest fire had been brought under control. And the group of firefighters was, were working back through the devastation, making sure all the hot spots had been extinguished. As they marched across the blackened landscape between the wisps of smoke still rising from the smoldering remains, a large lump on the trail caught a firefighter's eye. As he got closer, he noticed it was the charred remains of a large bird that had been burned nearly halfway through. Since birds can so easily fly away from the approaching flames, the firefighter wondered what must have been wrong with this bird that it could not escape. Had it been sick or injured? 
Arriving at the carcass, he decided to kick it off the trail with his boot. As soon as he did, however, he, he was startled half to death by a flurry of activity around his feet. Four little birds flailed in the dust and then ash and ash and then scurried away down the hillside. The bulk of the mother's body had covered them from the searing flames. Through the heat, though the heat was enough to consume her, it allowed her babies to find safety underneath. In the face of the rising flames, she had stayed with her young. Her dead carcass and her fleeing chicks told the story well enough. She gave the ultimate sacrifice to save her young. The hen in the story was the only chance those chicks had for safety. She, being willing to spare her own life, had gathered them up under her wings to herself. At the point of terrible pain and death, when she still might have saved herself, she chose to stay through the ordeal and give her own life. As we have observed in our free-range chickens, not all chicks run to their mothers in times of danger. Some are either paralyzed in panic or try to find a way to save themselves. They get devoured in the fire. The mother hen cannot run around gathering them individually. They have to come to her. Ooh, that's a good story for your, for your kids, but also for us, right? <laughs> Man, so powerful, right? A mother hen and her chicks. Jesus is like the mother hen who sacrificed her life for the sake of her chicks. So as we move into communion, um, again, this is about Jesus' body being broken and his blood being spilled out for his children to find forgiveness and eternal life. Communion is a time where we remember to hide in the mercy of Jesus, to find refuge under his wings instead of running off and trying to find forgiveness, life, protection anywhere else in this world. After all the Pharisees did, their pride, their hypocrisy, their legalism, their misleading people, Jesus still wanted them. He still wanted the Pharisees. How do we know this? As he was being crucified, Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But rather than coming to Jesus, many of them did their own thing. They kept going, and they're still going today with, with religion. They were, they're trying to save themselves or, or, or wait for, for the Messiah that's already come, right? So where do we find ourselves today? Are you finding refuge in Christ or are you running from him? Is there some inner Pharisee in us, some dirt in our dishes, hidden things in our hearts that we know don't glorify God? Maybe if you're here today and and you've been running from him your whole life, but you didn't really realize it. That's okay. That's okay. Jesus sees you. He loves you. He created you. And he has an amazing gift for you. Salvation. And so um, I'm going to invite the, the band to come back up. Um, we're going to sing a few more songs and, and take communion. Um, but as they, as they play and we worship, um, just invite us into a time of examination reflection, um, not as a way to beat ourselves up, 
but we have to ex- examine the bad news before we can get to the really, really good news. That Jesus has paid the ultimate sacrifice for all of the gunk in your life, for all of your sin. And we need to receive that conviction, but then confess that to him. Tell Jesus where you've gone wrong, right? Tell Jesus what's really going on in your heart. Confess that. Repent. Ask for his help. But then, as you do that, as we're singing, invite you to come up to the table and take some bread. You can dip it in one of the cups and celebrate the fact that Jesus died for you. Jesus died for the inner Pharisee. Jesus forgives you. He loves you. And he wants you to be set free. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. It's, uh, it's not always easy to study it, to hear from, from it. But God, I thank you that you do it in a way that is, is for our own good. It's for our own recognition and awareness so that we can know how much we need you. Jesus, we are desperately sick and dying and even dead in our sin without you. God, we need you every single day and we need you for salvation. God, I I thank you for everyone in this room that you love them. May we leave today maybe feeling convicted, but also knowing more than anything that you are a God of love who laid your life down so that we can find refuge under your wings and be saved. God, as we, as we take communion, I just pray for, for hearts that are, are open, hearts that are ready to surrender, that your spirit would do the hard work within us and that we can receive the goodness of Jesus. We pray this all in your name. Amen.